Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Of course, it's second Tuesday of the month, our ongoing series with Medical Association of Georgia. And we're hosting a couple of gentlemen here in the studio who are both physicians and authors. And they're going to be talking to us about why manners are important in our engagement with our healthcare professionals and physicians in particular in this case. I've got uh, Dr. Barry Silverman and Dr. Saul Adler with me in the studio, one of which still practicing in the cardiology, one that was with uh, pediatric ICU at Scottish Rite for a number of years. So, gentlemen, thanks for taking some time to be here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Dr. Silverman, I'll start with you. You're still in practice. Talk about how you got into medicine and and uh, and how you ended up choosing cardiology, and then we'll do the same with Dr. Adler around pediatrics, and then we'll kind of fold back and and see how this book came to be? Well, I grew up in a small town in Ohio, and I had a wonderful family doctor that was an important uh, part of our uh, culture and family, and I admired him very much. And I decided uh, that medicine looked like something that would be a real opportunity to give back. I had a brother who was really my mentor. Uh, He was very interested in becoming a doctor and a cardiologist. And so uh, he told me that I didn't have any choice but to go into cardiology. (laughs) And then at Ohio State where I went, uh, I had a wonderful mentor there who was a cardiologist and uh, very much into uh, caring for patients and helping people. And I did a number of research projects with him and came to really appreciate and understand him. And so fell in love with cardiology and, and treating patients with heart disease and and the bedside exam associated with that profession. And given the specialties that both gentlemen chose, I guess sleep is not really a big big thing for either one of you all with backgrounds and the, the specialties you chose. The phone rings a lot at night for uh, both those types of practices. You know, it does, CW. And <laughs> after I was in practice, I, I often wondered why I didn't think about ENT or ophthalmology. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> considering. I was one of those people calling at uh, two in the morning. You know, it is exciting when you get called and a patient's in a critical condition and you know it's up to you to help them. And uh, so it gets the adrenaline. It's, uh, it's very much a, a very exciting uh, kind of opportunity and uh, and keeps you young for a long time. And how about you, Dr. Adler? What took you into medicine? And then ultimately, what made you decide to go down the route of pediatrics and pediatric critical care? Well, I was always interested in the sciences, and I, I like to solve problems, and I, I like to interact with people. I didn't particularly um, think about uh, being a doctor until I was in my uh, third year of college. And, and, then, um, and then I had a really a wonderful professor, Ray Rappaport, and he uh, he allowed me to go into his lab and do some work with uh, fetal or, or uh, tadpoles, with tadpoles, and um, and I, I found it very exciting and fun, and um, I decided, well, maybe I'll do okay in medical school. <laughs> so you all did some 
you know, practice for a number of years. Of course, you recently retired from your work with uh, Scottish Rite Pediatric ICU. Talk about your relationship together because you came to, to know each other, became friends, uh, but also worked together collaboratively on patients with your background in cardiology, even though your, your focus is on adults, I guess for a period of time, there weren't a lot of pediatric cardiologists around. And so you actually got a chance to work with those patients alongside him as well. So CW, I did part of my training at Johns Hopkins. And one of my mentors there was Helen Tausick, who founded pediatric cardiology. And I spent some months with Helen seeing patients together. So when I came to Northside and Scottish Rite, when Northside really being one of the baby factories of the yes, country, yes. Um, Dr. Adler was a real leader in caring for very sick children. Since we didn't have any uh, pediatric cardiologists who was new at that time, uh, there were just a few at Emory, he kind of recruited me and I had had some training and interest. And so it was an opportunity for us to work together uh, with these babies born with serious uh, heart problems. And then, of course, Dr. Adler, you decided that you were so interested in writing as a as something you loved. You went and got a master's degree in writing, and now you're spending all your time doing that. I did. Uh, when I uh, left um, uh, medicine, I took a uh, uh, I got a degree in uh, professional writing at the Kennesaw State, which was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, there would be afternoons and evenings when I'd be wondering why I was on campus. <laughs> but uh, but it really was a lot of fun being back in the classroom and interchanging with a lot of bright people and the professors. And uh, I, I always liked to write. Um, uh, you were telling us a story about a friend of yours who who journaled in in uh, medical school and as during his training. And I tried to do that, but um, after thirty six hours of shift work, I found right. that I couldn't keep my eyes open long enough to write. But now I had the time and uh, I had the desire. And uh, so I started doing it. I knew about uh, Barry's project with his brother. He started it with his brother. After his brother tragically died, he, he, I, I offered to him, I said, you know, I can help you finish that book. And uh, we worked on it together. And that was uh, a lot of fun. I learned a lot. So what was the, what was the genesis of the, the concept for your book, talking about manners with regards to trying to educate a patient about the importance of this, I guess the fact that they can actually expect some measure of manners and it's fair to approach it that way? Well, you know, CW, there's two aspects to medicine. There's a scientific aspect that the doctor brings to the bedside of how to do the best care. And then there's the art of medicine, making the patient comfortable, helping the patient understand why that course of care is going to make a difference. I had a brother who was chief of cardiology at Piedmont for 30 years, and I was head of cardiology at Northside. And we would discuss those aspects. And both of us were on the Emory teaching faculty, and we would be teaching the medical school the science of heart disease. But we realized there was a real need to teach the science or the art of medicine to doctors. And we were getting feedback from patients that often they felt that the medical system was abusing them, wasn't listening to them, that they were um, having difficulty understanding uh, the doctors or relationships in hospitals they're being treated. And we realized that there was no documentation, there was no um, 
listing of what is the art of medicine. There was all the journals were devoted to the science, what is the best drug, how to do the best surgery, but how to treat a patient and what a patient should expect is the kind of art that was passed from one professor to another, but was never written down. And we realized there is a need to write it down so that the patients themselves can see what they should expect. And if that's not what they're receiving, have an opportunity to communicate and talk to their doctors or the nurses or the hospital staff about what their expectations are and why they're not receiving those expectations. When it comes to the the, the schooling side of things, when I'm a medical student or, or into residency, how much in that environment is given to me, and maybe more these days, because I think there's probably a little bit greater awareness of its importance, but when you all were training, for example, I mean, I assume that as much as anything, if you were somebody that had a pleasant bedside manner and a caring demeanor and you were empathetic and engaging, that was just because that was who you were. But if you weren't that kind of individual, then maybe you were less so when you were engaging with patients. Is that kind of how it happened? And then maybe placing more emphasis on it today in schools than they used to? Or what was we that evolution? When Saul and I were young, the professors that were at the bedside teaching us were also taking care of patients. Medicine has gone through a dramatic change where many of the professors who are teaching medical students now are often working in the lab and doing molecular biology, and they're not experts in patient care. Or the way medical schools have changed, they have many doctors in practice that are generating money for their salaries in the medical schools. And currently, the practice model requires so much time that there's not enough time for teaching patients. So the students today don't get exposed to the art. Mm. Another aspect was is that Saul and I were brought up in a time when it was hospital-based medicine. Patients would come into the hospital, and they would often stay for four or five days or longer. Today, patients are shunted in and out of the hospital within 24, 48 hours, and the opportunity to see bedside teaching and to teach the art of medicine uh, with patients is much diminished. And uh, so one impetus of the book was to help give the students and to give patients a better opportunity to, to see what is good quality care. And after all, the key to medicine is developing a relationship, communication. And we wanted to talk about how to improve that communication between the doctor and the patient. And in this case, though, the would you say that the primary audience for what you're having to say is really more the patient in this case than than the physician? Or do you feel as though, even though in some ways the, the language may be to a patient, that it's okay to expect some manner of good communication, it's okay to expect some manner of manners from your healthcare provider, whether it's a physician or other staff, um, that you feel like they can gain from that as well? I'm going to let Saul respond to that because he convinced me we felt if we wrote something directed at patients, it would be something doctors could use too, but there was nothing for patients. And this was an opportunity to share them. We now recognize that medical care is a team. It's not just the doctor providing medical care. The patient's part of that team, the hospital staff, the nurses. And so 
we wanted to start with one aspect of that team that had least experience with medicine and try to educate them. And, and Saul is the one that has uh, tuned me into this. Well, initially, Barry was giving lectures to medical students and, and, and uh, medical staff, and his initial pamphlet was directed at the professionals. But, um, you know, I read it over and I, and I said, Barry, you know, there's, there's a, a real need and a far greater uh, group of people who, who need to know what to expect from the doctor. And if they're not getting it, they need to know how to, how to, um, how to communicate that to the doctor that they need something different. In addition, when we wrote the book, um, we realized that patients have a very difficult time evaluating the skills that a doctor has. I mean, if you're, uh, you know, you're out in the community, uh, and, um, you can't tell if a doctor keeps up with his uh, journals or if he goes to conferences or if his skills, you know, surgical skills are on a par with the other doctors. But one thing that we've experienced uh, in our careers is that the doctors who do keep up, who do read the journals, are also the doctors who are generally the most respectful uh, of their patients and mm -hmm. who get the best outcomes. So one thing that we emphasize in the book is that if, if you find a doctor who is respectful and uh, makes, uh, you know, makes a connection uh, and that you have confidence in because of his uh, way of uh, interrelating with you, that that is, uh, in all likelihood, a doctor who is on the uh, leading edge of medicine. Do you talk about questions that it might be good for them to ask to delve into some of that? We do, and we have, uh, and we have uh, several kind of uh, at, e at the end of each chapter, we have several uh, examples of, of situations a patient might be in and how to manage them. And I'm sure, well, in my own experience, it, it seems that so many people when they're in that patient role are reticent to challenge in any way the physician or the other members of the healthcare delivery team uh, with questions about what about this or what about that, or even to to uh, address maybe some less than stellar behavior, whatever that case may be, um, they they don't necessarily feel maybe it's a, a respect of the position of status, perhaps uh, or power in that r relationship that keeps them from doing so. But you're actually encouraging them to step in and really engage right back. So yesterday in the emergency room at Northside. I was asked to see a woman who had had a spell where she almost passed out and was lightheaded. When I came into the room, her two adult daughters and her brother were there. And this patient had been um, concerned about having serious heart disease and having a number of tests. And in my discussion of her and evaluation of her, I appreciated that, that maybe she didn't need all the tests that she had been suggested in the emergency room might be necessary. Well, I could see that this upset a number of members of the family who felt like maybe I wasn't being attentive to her, wasn't concerned enough about her. And so you recognize that, that part of the art is you have to convince them that you are on their side and then discuss the science. They're not scientists, so that's sometimes hard and then see what their concerns are in listening to them. And that's what the book talks a lot about, listening and appreciating that this particular patient needed the support of all of her family. 
one of the family members got so upset that she walked out of the room because she was worried that she would explode and be inappropriate. And so I had to wait for her to come back in and pull her in and get to understand that aspect of it. It's not something all the doctors appreciate. And one reason we wanted to give this book to young doctors was to help tune them in to that aspect that they're going to be more successful in their practice, more successful in getting the patient to buy into what is the best medicine for them if they can identify the patient support system and how to communicate with that patient. Now more than ever, it seems that outside of just the fact that it's the right way to practice and deliver medicine and healthcare in general, it was by engaging with the patients and and not so much seeing them as a commodity or as a nuisance if they've got more questions yet before they're comfortable with proceeding, is that now that things like value-based reimbursement, merit-based reimbursement are coming into play, hearing that patient satisfaction is going to actually have an impact on some level on my reimbursement and how I get paid as a physician. So there's actually that much more reason why a physician or other healthcare provider would want to pay attention to how are they interacting with their client, um, the patient, such that it can it can actually hit me in the bottom 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 line, not just maybe have an aggravated patient who complains about me, but now there's that many more places for a patient who is unsatisfied with their interaction to really make it known. Uh, years ago, 10 years ago, plus, you know, you, you might be able to gripe to your family and friends about something. But today I can talk to thousands of people at the stroke of a key. So I guess all of those fold into why it might really be important other than just being the right thing to do for a physician to actually pay attention to this. Well, there's no question that's a concern. that The uh, Medicare guidelines are going to be looking at uh, how satisfied patients are. The bottom line is that good medicine is about bringing the best in scientific advances to the patient and getting them to buy in. So just before I came over here, I was at Grady, and I had a a wonderful Grady patient, an older woman, who had difficult to manage hypertension. She was on four or five drugs. And, you know, it was hard for her to understand that she might need even more drugs. She was talking about multivitamins and other things that she was learning. And so getting her to have confidence in the doctor was critical for her to take her medicines because otherwise she's going to have a stroke or a heart attack. In that situation, and and that's not an uncommon situation where a, a patient at Grady doesn't have a regular doctor. Many patients don't have regular doctors. And so the book talks about ways that in a very little time, and doctors have little time, that you can get the patients to buy in. And it tells the patient that if they have concerns that aren't being heard, if they feel the doctor is really just telling them what to do but not listening to their concerns, how to get that doctor's attention so that they can get out all of their concerns. And I'm I'm sure that takes a a gulp of of confidence or or leap of faith, if you will, for a patient to say, hold on a second, I, I still have some questions. I imagine that's a, a tough thing for a lot of people to change for themselves to how, with how, how they approach that. One of the things we emphasize is uh, that you should go into the doctor's office with a list of questions that you want answered. And you should go into the doctor's office with a family member or a friend 
who is going to have a clear head and not be in pain, not be uncomfortable from whatever is the reason why you went into the doctor's office in the first place. And that way, um, not only will all your questions get answered, but because you'll have a, a colleague there to help you out, uh, you'll remember what the doctor said when you when you leave the office. Yeah, and I think that's great advice because once you get in there and the 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 physician comes in and they're doing their thing, they're busy, and they they have things that they're thinking about and focused on. It it would be very easy, particularly when it's a very busy practice and the physician has limited time to let them get out the door. And then, oh, I forgot to ask. So if you have a list there or you have that plus somebody else sitting there going, remember to ask them about this, or they can ask their own questions as well. That that would be very, very helpful, I think, for many patients, particularly in some of these areas like you're talking about where you're dealing with cardiology or other chronic diseases like so many patients are these days. Of course, C.W., Dr. Adler and I would really like most doctors and hospitals to put our books in their waiting room <laughs> so that patients when they're sitting there waiting for the doctor, can start to read about some of those aspects that might improve that doctor visit, improve that relationship, and increase their satisfaction. Because it, in today's world, where so much of what they learn is electronic or on television or on the internet, it is hard to get people to look at a book. And, and one of the ways you have them captured is in the waiting room the uh, doctor. Talking with Dr. Barry Silverman and Saul Adler, authors of the book, Your Doctor's Manners Matter, Better Health Through Civility in the Doctor's Office and in the Hospital, giving some advice to the patient on how to approach their interaction with a physician, what it's okay to expect, uh, including a a degree of decorum and, and engagement and manners from their physician and other healthcare providers, as well as how to prepare to go to the doctor's office so that you can make sure that you're well-informed about what is going on with you and uh, questions that you might want to ask and how to approach that. I, I know that over time, we've all, as patients, had patient obligations. I've got deductibles and copays, et cetera, et cetera. But nowadays, that's that much more of a focus with changes in the law. There's a lot of people who maybe they have insurance now that didn't have it before, but they have very large copays, very large out-of-pocket expenses. And now, um, Mr. Hall, I need you to get this test how much does this test cost me? Uh, you know, talk about how I can should approach that conversation as a patient. Is it okay to question, should I have this test or can I get by without it? That kind of thing. Because now much of that test may be coming out of my billfold. That's a really important problem that we address in the book. And um, it's very common. Um, I have a patient recently that uh, had a um, serious uh, hematologic disorder, uh, uh, type of uh, pre-leukemia, and um, he was seeing the oncologist who said he'd like to get this um, genetic testing on him, and uh, this was unusual genetic testing, and it would be expensive. The patient uh, who has to pay 20 or 30 percent of the cost said, well, is it going to make any difference? Well, the doctor had to be honest and say, well, you know, it's really, I'm just interested whether you have this genetic marker. And so it would have been literally hundreds and hundreds of dollars for that patient to get that test. So the patients need to be aware that they have to ask whether the test makes a difference and whether there's alternative. And and there's a clear duty in medicine not to do tests that are going to not make a difference. You don't need to have a test to look for heart disease if you don't have any symptoms, because currently we know 
what to do with patients that don't have symptoms, that you need to lose weight and exercise and control your blood pressure and eat a low-fat diet and monitor your cholesterol. So doing tests for heart disease and doing procedures like angioplasty or surgery have not been shown to prolong life. So when patients that are asymptomatic have tests, it can be very expensive. Medicare requires more than 20% uh, out-of-pocket expenses, and so do a lot of the high deductibles uh, require even more than that. Patients need to know when they can ask. A lot of times, patients are not even having the opportunities to see doctors. Medicine is moving in many offices where physician assistants uh, and nurse practitioners are making those decisions. And these are wonderful people and uh, fairly well-trained. But the patients, and the book talks about this, need to know uh, when they can question this and what are the questions to ask. How is this going to make a difference? And all the alternative tests that might be less dangerous, for example, to... uh, provide a test for a woman in the chest that has radiation is exposing her to an increased risk of breast cancer every time. Is that the best test at this time? Or are there alternative tests that use non-radiation like ultrasound that could answer that question just as well? Now, I know as it comes to, I, I throughout the time I've been doing this show, whenever I have the opportunity, I talk about the importance for the patient to try to learn as much as they can about whatever it is that they're dealing with, their health-related issues. And obviously, much of that is internet-based, though. I try to say, make sure where you're going is a legitimate source of, of, of information, say, a, a Mayo and, and some of these other places that put out legitimate, helpful information. And I know that, that I've, I've heard it referred to as Dr. Google by uh, some of the folks from the medical profession. I know on some levels, it's mildly aggravating if you have a patient comes in at feels as though now they're the scientist, if you, as you described earlier. But uh, I mean, what, what's your best advice in terms of getting educated? Do you feel like there's use in, in going out and doing research like that on your own? A well-educated patient is more likely to follow your advice. And so I encourage patients. And in the book, we talk about this and we give websites. We love the Mayo Clinic website. Uh, we love the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology Um, These are good places to get solid information, and it helps the doctor. We have a limited time, and now some of our time is being stolen away by the electronic medical record where we have to fill that out. So the patient comes in who's been educated, that has good questions. That's an opportunity. And you know, today in medicine, it's just as likely for the doctor to Google it as it is for the patient, (laughs) you know? (laughs) When I uh, have teaching a medical student today, they're so much better at electronics than I am. And I'm describing some kind of unusual patient and and they're Googling that and pulling up an article that relates to that. Yeah, Google Scholar. Uh, So um, Google is a leap forward for all of us. Like I said, it's a team and the patient's part of the team and more than one patient has brought information to the bedside that's made a difference in improving their care. The doctor needs to listen. So I had an example of a woman whose daughter was in an automobile accident and the daughter continued to have pain. The doctors insisted that they had evaluated that pain and it was just post-traumatic pain and would get better. The mother knew her daughter 
and knew what was post-traumatic pain and what was something not getting better. She finally had to get another opinion, pull a doctor in who did more sophisticated testing like MRI and identify that there was an injury there that hadn't been recognized. So it's clear that the patients have to be advocates for themselves and their family. And good doctors listen to those advocates, answer all those questions, be sure they're answered correctly and not just blow them off. And that's a lot of what the book is about, to bring the patient into the teamwork and be sure that everybody's on the same page. What if I'm not happy? What if my engagement is such that I'm, I'm a little steamed or maybe my family member is, or I'm just, I'm, I'm just not satisfied with my interaction? What do I do? How do I convey that? Do I, do I run to the internet and go, that doctor so-and-so, he's, he's you know, or, or do I approach it with the physician, practice manager? How do I go about it? Dr. Adler, he's addressed that in the book several times. Well, the, uh, the first thing is what not to do, and that is don't confront the individual who's making you unhappy in the office. You know, I can't remember who said it, but a letter written in rage is a letter written with regret. Right. So, so the, um, the best thing to do is, you know, go home, think it through, and then write a, a clear, a factual note to the physician or to the office manager. It's better to send it to the physician and uh, explaining exactly uh, why uh, the patient, your patient, is unhappy and uh, who the interchange was with and when and, and uh, in what situation. And you should get a, a very nice uh, letter back, um, either explaining what happened or apologizing for what happened. If this happens on a recurring basis, then, um, you know, you're always free to find a, another doctor. Uh, you know, if my, you know, talking about you, you were coming from a background in pediatrics, for example, and um, we're talking about patient satisfaction here. And, and if I'm a parent, I've got a child and, and, and most of us in the room probably do. But if I've, if I've reached out to the physician practice, I'm waiting for a call back, whether it's for my child or my other loved one, whatever the case may be, how when do I start getting aggravated if I haven't heard back? Well, it really depends on the situation. If it's an emergency situation, uh, then you should get the call back right away. And most doctor's offices now have a, a triage system where uh, a nurse will uh, get the phone call. And uh, if there's a big issue, she'll you know, either get you to uh, help or get the doctor on the phone. If it's a lab test, um, then some lab tests, uh, for instance, endocrine tests, can take up a week to get back. Uh, some tests, uh, a blood test uh, or or an X-ray, uh, you'll have the results back uh, by that evening or the next morning. And it really depends on what the situation is. And Dr. Silverman, you talked about an experience in the emergency room where the family were uh, obviously they were concerned about their loved one and and uh, maybe not in the best place to to hear what you had to say, but. Uh, some of that can come from wait times and things like that uh, that lead up to those interactions. How should a patient handle that? Because, I mean, that's a common thing these days is long wait time, whether it's in an ER waiting room or in a doctor's office, whether it's in the lo lo lobby or even in the treatment room. You know, waits in medicine are a chronic problem, and they do frustrate the patient. And the patient and the family gets frustrated, then they don't communicate well. So, it's clearly the responsibility of the doctor to be cognizant of that, to talk to the patients about that. But sometimes it's not helpful. 
I think, and, and related to Dr. Adler's answer on the last time, that most practices should tell the patient what the expected wait time should be, when they have a test, when they should hear back. And if patients don't have that communication with their doctor or that office, they need to ask for it. Mm -hmm. So they're not waiting days for something that really slipped through the cracks because things do slip through the cracks. I know that most pediatric practices bring the patients in and explain that those, if they're sick, how long it's going to take to be seen. If they're not sick, how long. If they have tests and uh, those requirements, whether they want them to be vaccinated, whether patients can turn down vaccinations. And the same is true in our offices. We let the patients know when the tests are done, when they can expect those. And I, as part of the team, I tell the patient, if you haven't heard the results of this test in 48 hours, then some way we've screwed up. You need to call and say, you know, I, you told me I was going to get that result and I didn't get it because we need them to be part of the team and reminding us if that happens. That's great. And I think that's a, that's a, a good piece of, of advice is to both to the physician or to the healthcare provider to let them know what should you be look when should you send send help to to try to find us right because you know like you're saying if you haven't had this in in this thus and such time then something's awry and you need to reach out and let us make sure we get it to you absolutely because you're doing those tests for a reason so the patient needs to know so often patients have told me well I didn't hear from the doctor so I just took it for granted everything was okay that's a danger. <laughs> and when it comes to dealing with our overall patient satisfaction levels, I'm sure most practices these days are having to report on some on that on some level, uh, particularly hospital employed folks, because that factors into the hospital's overall satisfaction as well. So, practice manager, physicians, how do we how do we need to approach improving where we are? You know, we provide service for a lot of different uh, medical insurance companies, and some of those do outreach surveys. And it was amazing how often it came back that we didn't perform in areas that we thought we were great in. It's so easy to think you're doing a good job until you actually see the patient feedback. And so we try to do regular patient surveys about twice a year. And now, as medicine has become more integrated, the hospital base, they do them. Certainly, the insurance companies do them and give you an opportunity to see where uh, you're having problems. Are they having interactions at the front desk? Are they having difficulty scheduling? Are they not hearing back from lab tests? Are they having to wait a long time? Uh, are they sitting naked in the room waiting for someone in a pretty uncomfortable situation. So those need, and if the patients are seeing doctors and aren't asking those questions, then they have to encourage those offices to start to do that. And I'm sure that's a big part of this element of, of, of importance is whether or not you're actually actively polling. Are you, are you asking those questions and are you just dismissing, oh, Mrs. Jones, she's kind of crazy anyway, so I'm not surprised she wasn't happy. I think that that's probably a risky way to, to approach it because for the patient who does share their negative experience with you, some just go away and they're you know, sharing their experience, but they're not necessarily sharing the, the feedback with you. 
That's true. And see, I want to make the comment. There's doctors listening to this show. We have a right to ask certain patient behaviors, too. And, and we address that in the book. The patients have responsibilities to not be too demanding, to be courteous to the staff. So we have some patients that have in the past been insulting or difficult when the staff has really reached out. And a doctor has a responsibility there to sit down. So often, when the doctor walks into the room, the patient puts on a different face and they have no complaints and they're really happy and they're sweet to the doctor, but they're abusive to your staff. And so it's important that not only the medical side have good manners and behavior, but that the patient has good behavior because taking care of a patient that's appreciative, um, you're going to, uh, they're going to get a much better response. One of my favorite stories is uh, many years ago, we used to have very limited waiting times. Uh, families couldn't visit with their patients in the ICU, you're an ICU yep. nurse, and in the CCU. Well, I had one patient that brought in a fresh cake every day to the nurses. She knew what was happening to her husband every minute of the day because they really appreciated her attention and being considerate of them. And so those are the kind of things. Uh, behavior is all about having a good experience. Definitely a two-way street. No, no question about that. I mean, if you are assertive but respectful in how you deliver your questions or uh, frustrations or desires for something to be different, then it's probably going to be received a little bit better and maybe acted upon more likely, as you're describing there. No question about it. From what I understand, you you two and Medical Association of Georgia partnered to donate your book to the first-year medical students. Talk about that. What was that all about? You know, the Medical Association is committed to improving the quality of care in the state of Georgia. It's done a fantastic job along a number of lines. Young doctors are being exposed earlier than ever to patients. It used to be that when Dr. Adler and I were in medical school, you didn't see a patient until your junior year of medical school. Now, sometimes the first right. week, yeah. because of that, and because these are naive young people in their early 20s, we thought that the book would give them an opportunity to have a background of how they should behave, what patients should expect, and improve their communication. And the Medical Association felt that was a great idea and a way that we could support our young doctors that we're trying to help uh, take uh, the new doctors and help our state. Uh, and you know, the medical schools bought into it right away. They appreciated that there isn't a lot of information in the art of medicine. And this was an opportunity to, uh, to support them. I have gotten feedback from a number of medical students and thank you notes. Uh, we also do this at uh, Vanderbilt, uh, where I spent some time at, and they have, uh, their students have uh, appreciated it. So some of the uh, Georgia schools are waiting to the fall to give this out when the students start their new rotation. But, but I think it's going to be a great opportunity for them. And, and we really support uh, appreciate the support of the Medical Association, which has done so much for medicine in this state. Well, I know I've got you both in the middle of the day. You have some final thoughts before I let you get back to your probably less fun task than hanging out talking on the radio? You know, the most precious thing in medicine is time. And if the doctor doesn't take enough time, if the patient doesn't demand enough, 
time, then the real concern for their health is not taken care of. And so good manners is all about being sure that whatever time you have that you communicate uh, and that you appreciate what both you're trying to do as a patient to get better and as a doctor to deliver good quality care. I want to thank you for having us. The The most important thing I think about uh, what we do in the book is justify treating the patient with good manners. Good manners are a sign of respect. And uh, if if the doctor shows that he respects the patient, then then it's most likely that the patient will follow the doctor's advice, understanding that the doctor has the patient's best interests at heart. If that doesn't come through in the interchange, then the uh, office visit or the hospital visit will be a waste of time. Excellent information. Dr. Barry Silverman and Dr. Saul Adler, authors of Your Doctor's Manners Matter, Better Health Through Civility in the Doctor's Office and in the Hospital. Get it on Amazon. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Everybody, thanks so much for listening to us today, and we look forward to catching up with you next week. We'll see you. 